Hey everybody, it's John here. Before we get into this episode of Talking at the Diner, I just want to mention a couple of things. I want to say another sincere thank you to everyone who has purchased, read, listened to, and or reviewed my memoir, The Yin and the Yang of It All. Thanks to you, the book has hit the Amazon bestseller list numerous times in multiple categories, and there are over 130 reviews on Amazon with a 4.8 overall rating. And it's important for you to know that every review matters. This is a key factor in telling the dreaded Amazon algorithm to keep suggesting the book to other readers. So if you're just finishing the book, please consider sharing your honest review. We're just about at the six-month point since the book was released, and this is the time when that old saying, it's a marathon, not a sprint, really rings true. Please keep reading, please keep reviewing, and please keep spreading the word as we head into the fall season. And one more thing. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like what you hear, please know that the show is funded by my community on Patreon and that your support for as little as $2 a month will help the show keep thriving. And you'll be feeding working musicians. And I can tell you from experience that nothing fuels a musician's creativity like runny eggs or a grilled ham and cheese sandwich. So let's get right to the show. As we sit here telling stories till it's quarter after three. The details are so gory, but that's how they're supposed to be. And this waiter must be wondering if we're ever gonna leave. What's up, everybody? My name is John Kim Fay, and welcome to Talking at the Diner, the show where musicians and other creatives tell me their stories at the, uh, the greasy spoon of their choice. Well, in the case of today's show, it was their second choice. When I originally met up with my longtime friend and fellow songwriter, Brian Seymour, the plan was to go to an old favorite haunt of his, Little Pete's in the Fairmount section of Philadelphia. But it turns out, little Pete had different ideas and went on vacation without updating his Google business page. But we musicians are an industrious lot, and Brian and I soon found ourselves about five minutes away at the Blue Jay at 29th and Girard in North Philadelphia, where we encountered a charming cash-only gem of a restaurant run by a kindly Greek couple who clearly have a deep history there. The interior was a veritable time capsule, as charming as your great-aunt's Hummel collection. And Brian and I chatted about all kinds of topics, from how much times have changed since his days in the early 2000s singer-songwriter scene, where he would regularly play up and down the East Coast, or fly out to L.A. to do shows and rub elbows with artists like Grace Potter, and become a mainstay at long-gone Philly venues like the Tin Angel and the North Star Bar, both places I knew and loved as well. Now, in the post-pandemic world of 2023, Brian has a brilliant new record called American Courage. He has jumped back into the fray with a killer collection of songs 
and a different outlook on his methods and motivations for sharing his considerable gifts. Here's a little taste. I'm always leaving, but I never go away. Help me pack my bags and I'll ride, all right, all right. I'm always leaving, but I never go away. Don't you know? I really enjoyed talking with my old friend Brian, and I know you'll enjoy the conversation too. So, without any more of my yakking, here's my chat with Brian Seymour on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. Oh, it's nice and cool in here. Oh, nice. How you doing? Hello. Two, can we just sit anywhere? Anywhere you like. Great. All right. Hello? What's your choice? Here. Yeah, this is a nice one. You're the only customers, Brian. This is thrilling. It's kind of a... How are you? Thank you. Thank you. All right, Blue Jay. Funny, I've walked by the Blue Jay many times. I've never actually... Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, friends who live up in this neighborhood when they started calling a brewery town, you know. I got you. Started to become a destination. Well, with we with with a lack of irony, a, a friend told me that he just bought a place in Graduate Hospital. Oh. And there hasn't been a Graduate Hospital for like fifteen that's, years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but we remember those things in Philadelphia. We're like the Blue Room. I know. I mean, it's <laughs> the hell is the Blue Room. I still call it the gallery down on uh, Market mm-hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. So many things, so many changes. It's interesting you bring up the North Star. I haven't thought about that club in a long time. Yeah. A lot of key moments in that place for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I remember, well, I had two record release things there and there was a period in like 98 after the Caulfields broke up when I somehow got roped into playing Sunday nights in the front bar. Mm-hmm. And I did like every Sunday for like a I year. That gig, yeah. And uh, that was really pretty life changing because that was the first time I really figured out how to play by myself. Hmm. And that was a new, mm-hmm. new experience. And now that's almost exclusively what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I played it um, in a place in. Um in New York called Berlin. Oh, Berlin under A? Yeah. Yes. And um, uh, Jay came out, who used to bartend at the North Star. Oh, wow. And it was like having that old, like, connection. A lot of good folks around, you know. And Chris, you know, who used to play bass with me, lived upstairs. I remember Chris. Yeah. How's that guy? You know, he's happy. He's living out in the Burbs. Nice. Yeah. He's a great dude. Yeah. He's, He's still a great guy. Yeah. Well, but, uh, no, it's funny about the North Star, too. I remember all the great bands that played there, and you look at it now, and it doesn't look like it could handle because of the way that big overhang was. Mm-hmm. It always looked a lot smaller yeah. than it was. Well, what is it now? What is it? Yeah. Is it, is it, it anything? It kept, it kept coming back, and it just never did, I think. Oh, okay. So it's not even currently a, an establishment. No. Mm-hmm. No. It's a bummer. Yeah, I remember seeing Bob Wood there solo. I remember 
opening for Train a bunch of times because Chris was kind of friends with them oh. when they were kind of when they were coming up before that big yes. hit. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, wow! So many shows. Yeah, I, I mean, there really were, and it's weird because, like, for the number of like important huge things that happen there, like it doesn't it doesn't cross my mind a lot mm -hmm. for some reason. I don't know. If it's just been too long or. I was going to say, do you think it's it's the vanishing act? Do you it think might it be, kind of, you know. Yeah. Um, it just seems like such a lifetime ago, you know. With the controversy around the Kyber and around Dobbs, you know, like with the different iterations, it's mm -hmm. like there's history people still talk about. It's kind of living. Yeah. More stars just right. kind of slipped into obscurity. Do you know what you want? Gentrification. Yes, I do. Okay. Go ahead. I'm going to do a grilled ham and cheese and fries and a cup of coffee. Could I please get uh, two eggs sunny side up yep. with uh, bacon well done, uh, white toast, and hash browns, please? Home fries. Home fries, thank you. Uh, white, you think? White toast, yeah. And just a nice water to drink. Strong order. Sometimes you know if the person waiting on you in a diner is a no nonsense person, I can tell you, like, I'm going to just lay it all out. Just lay it all out. No questions. Oh, I like how their menu is on like a string that moves. Yeah, and it looks like it's really kind of been unfolded over time. <laughs> I know. It's like, well, I like know. the design in here, though. I mean, the countertop is very cool. And I hope it never changes. Yeah. You can always tell an old place because of the different materials. It's got some fake brick mm -hmm. and some fake uh, flagstone. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Got this wonderful fake marble top, mm -hmm. and it's it's fantastic. It's got, the, it's got the tiling for part of the and the great pediment into the secret room in the back. You know? <laughs> so the reason I chose Little Pete's is because um, when I first moved to Philly in '98, mm -hmm. there was a Little Pete's on help me out 17th Street, I think, like 16th, 17th. I mean, I've never been. It so was a little tiny, little okay. tiny place. There was three of them. Okay. Yeah, there was three Pete's at one point, um, and it was Pete and his brother. And his brother ran the one that I used to go to. And it was a little, like, horseshoe counter. Oh, and yeah. And booths along the wall. Right. And it was a no-nonsense place. It was like, i got to turn this table over. So, you right. Know, <laughs> yeah, you, you had to know what you had to order. There's no, you know, if you weren't ready, it's like, that, you know. Coffee? Please. But then they had a place in Fairmount where I guess it was kind of Pete's place. And that's um, the one that I wanted to take you to at the Philadelphia. So that's mm -hmm. got a built-in clientele because the Philadelphian is a... Uh, and, and a retired population, so yes. it's an audience that just kind of makes its way downstairs. <laughs> and then what I found when I moved to Fairmount, when I had uh, my son was, was born, is that it's also for the exhausted parents to right. <laughs> just go and get a meal. They should they should have a <laughs> diner called the Exhausted Parents. Because <laughs> usually, if at home you're eating standing up, you know, like nobody tells you that's what you're going to be doing for right. the first three years. You know, showering quickly, I ate eating so many, standing up. I still <laughs> eat a lot of. Foods over the sink <laughs> at home. Mm -hmm. Just out of habit. I don't have to, but it's, it feels comfortable. Have you watched uh, The Bear? Yes. I, I I still have like two or three. Like I was on a roll. Yeah. I mean, I really liked the first season, and then when season two came out, I was like, all right. And then I um, I still have like three or three episodes left, What's and I haven't finished it. What strikes me, and the reason I brought him up, is because when he tries to date. And you realize he hasn't had a normal life. Right. Like even his apartment is like a, a mess. Like you expect it to be, yeah. you know, kind of 
I don't know, the apartment of a head chef somewhere. Right. But it kind of reminds no. me of conversations that you sometimes have with folks in these settings about the life that you choose, the creative life that yeah. you, make, you know, maybe will find you eating over the sink more often than you want to. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even thinking about it, really. It's yeah. just like a default. Uh, I, it's funny because uh, when I get together with my old band, The Caulfields, we almost always reminisce about uh, places we ate and, you know, everything revolves around food with this band. And uh, there was one time we were, the van broke down, but we were near a rest stop on the PA Turnpike. And the drummer and I, Richie Rubini, uh, we saw this man, like, order a full meal from, like, you know, the... Popeyes or the Roy Rogers or whatever. It's like a it's like a gigantic piece of chicken, and we just like watched in simultaneous fascination and horror as this guy just sort of like ate this piece of chicken over a garbage can. And he's like tapping me on the shoulder, like, it's like, look at this fucking guy, Jesus Christ!" You know, we're just like watching every bite with like revulsion, but we could not couldn't turn away. And I think it's partly because. We so related to it, mm-hmm. you know. We're like brings questions of you know existential questions of self-loathing <laughs> into the conversation. What did uh, so you know the early singer-songwriter days of doing you know up to Boston, down to Virginia, down to out you know Atlanta, sometimes to Nashville. What Cliff Ellis used to call the Waffle House tour, of course, you know. Um, and yeah, just just that whole idea of like getting a meal with the band was kind of a reward at the end of the night. Yeah, kind of like you know you're extending the night. Yep. If you're, that, if you, you know. that's the after party for some of us. <laughs> <That's> the, right, <laughs> not, not quite as sexy like, as like perhaps we we, right, you what, know. what I imagine is happening at the War on Drugs. You know, or right. they're playing at the Stone Pony. Or, <laughs> um, or going never, to Waffle House. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. it is good time. Um, no, that is that is definitely a. Uh, Swingers Diner in LA was always the place too. Oh yeah, it was just a natural like gravitate there at the end of the night. Now, take me back to when you started out, like doing your thing. Because was it originally um, like a Philly-based thing, or so I graduated from Villanova. Okay, nineteen eighty-nine, and I was not quite ready to enter the world of work. Mm. Um, you know, this thing about AI taking people's jobs. Nobody likes their job, you know? But AI has <laughs> all like, the jobs. Go ahead and take it. Yeah. Uh, no, so I, I, I was thinking about graduate school, and I found that I hit that right time mm-hmm. when the Ken Queter, you know, guy in the bar playing the guitar thing was starting to happen. Yeah. Except, you know, Kenny was playing all the great stuff he plays, but I was playing Billy Bragg and Echo and the Bunny Man, and people were like, oh, okay. Yes. So that was a very short scene, but I rode that scene for about three years yeah. and made a ton of money and paid for grad school. Wow. Yeah. I was paying for grad school. That's yeah, impressive. Because yeah, I did, um, uh, the, the Philly folks introduced me to the South Shore. Okay. I grew up at the shore, so I grew up near Ashbury Park. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you drive to the beach, you know, right. so it's not yeah. anything special. But here, they got me a gig down there and they paid so well. It was like a party town. Now it's family town, but then it right. was a party town. I got you. So, yeah. So I would do a little triangle. I would go from Philly. It's almost like playing. Uh, down the South Shore. Down in, like, you know, the 
Key West or something like right. that. Right, <laughs> yeah. And, and then it was just, it was the only thing happening. Like, there wasn't really anything else going on, and nobody, yeah. people hadn't kind of caught on yet. Anyway, long story short, is I gained so much stage time. Yeah. I mean, interpreting other people's music and knowing how to put over a song, knowing how to make the crowd pay attention, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a lot of value in that and I think getting quiet when they're loud you know instead yeah. of trying to fight with them <laughs> right like pull them closer like make them <laughs> oh I should shut up for a second can I, can I get a 20 second time out and tell you about a guy sure. in, in Boston who uh, he was hosting this night at a small place in Cambridge called the Kendall Cafe which okay. I loved I went up and played there a bunch and it took the pressure off trying to pretend I was folky to play at Passim you know, because they, they sniff you out. They're like, right. you're not smoky you, enough. Right. You had to pass the, the litmus <laughs> test back then. Tried to grow a beard. <laughs> um, but so, so anyway, I'm playing at the Kendall Cafe, and this delightful young woman played first, and she had a little crowd, and her family was there. It seemed like she was just starting out. Mm -hmm. And then I played, and I had my 15 people, whatever. And then the host gets up there. I'm not going to tell you his name. And he, in the middle of his first song, he stops, and he says, listen, folks, if you don't want to listen to the music, there's a bar in the front, and God damn it, John, 20 people stood yes. up and said, what a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, me and the if opening act people stayed, the option. You know? <laughs> so I think I learned early on that it was about the crowd. You know? yeah. And that's, that's hard. It's something in my, you know, kind of mature performances Mm -hmm. that I've realized it's, it's all about them. I used to think it was a little bit about me, but now I realize it really isn't about me. It's about them having a good night. And maybe maybe there's some goodwill there that I build with my original music and they want to, maybe not even buy a CD, just kind of listen, you mm -hmm. know? And that's something that was hard to learn. You I know? think if you establish early on in a performance that, like, you want them to have a good time with you, mm -hmm then Excellent. Yeah. I think it, it goes a long way yep. to building that. If it's be, and, this, and trust me, this is from the mouth of a guy who used to be very combative <laughs> with yeah. audiences. <laughs> Thank you. I think, you know, doing that and, and getting all those stage miles. Mm -hmm. I went to grad school, played throughout grad school, and then I did what I wanted to do, which was work in the auction business. So I had gotten a master's in art history, which doesn't prepare you to do anything. Um, you know, even the folks in the museum shop at the PMA have doctorates, you know. Right. <laughs> so you really have to kind of keep going. But I wanted to work in the auction business, and it was hot when I was in grad school, and it was huh. when the Japanese were buying up all of I did not know that Impressionism that was... and all that. And, yeah, and so I went to New York. I worked for Christie's. Wow. Yeah. I worked in the bins department. I got to be on stage and... Got to wear a tux to the fancy sales. It was really fun. <laughs> How do you feel about the tuxedo? Are you comfortable in it? I've never been comfortable in it. It's somebody else's clothing. You're like renting clothing. <laughs> you know? I think the age of the tuxedo is, is, is going away. I, do. I, I wonder if COVID was the final blow to the suit. You, know? you think? Yeah, I mean, I before <clears throat> I teach at a community college. Yeah. So I had always worn a suit as a way, as a college professor, to be like, this, I'm showing up, you know, I'm showing my students that I'm showing up. Now, on the other side of the pandemic, I got rid of all seven of my suits. Really? And What do you do with seven suits? I attach them to the patriarchy now, and I'm like, I'm not going to show my students that I am continuing the role of the <laughs> oh, dominant male, the, I see. the sage on the stage. The suit makes you, you know, 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna in rethink. cahoots with the man. Is that what you're thinking? Totally, the man was like pushing the suit on me. You know, and get that Windsor and that half Windsor out of here. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I've, I've totally rethought it. That's interesting. But I, I think that the yeah the pandemic from what I've been told from people in business and lawyers and stuff is that even client facing as they say people are not wearing suits. Yeah, it's just kind of like the diner. People were just I like that the you know diners going the way okay. of the tuxedo. Because I mean it's a great social space, but you know, yeah, I don't know. Is it going to go away? <laughs> it's an interesting question. <laughs> Will it go the way the North Star, or <laughs> it'll just go away like? Inline skating, inline skating, <laughs> <laughs> or reading books. <laughs> Just yeah. go away. You know? Well, there's still some people that are old school, I guess. So, well, Probably I had a complete. friend who wrote a book. I bought it, hardcover. Mm-hmm. That's you, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> if anybody writes a book, you got to buy their book. That's a rule. I mean, okay. What an effort. It was an effort. It was yeah, certainly it was something an effort. that happens overnight. I tell you, lots of nights. The incubation. Yeah. And all the stopping, the starting, and I mean, with a song, there's a certain kind of gratification. I've been carrying around this silly little Christmas song that I've been trying to write forever. I have one too. It's actually called Boxing Day. It's not a Christmas song. Okay. And man, I just can't seem to find it. Find it? You mean like complete it or actually locate it somewhere? (laughs) it's, It's done. Okay. But it's it's not its best, mm-hmm. and I know that because I don't always remember it. And if I don't remember something, yeah. that means it's on the cutting block. Mm-hmm. So this morning, when I should have been doing seventeen other things, my family is away, which is death because it means the piano just sucks me in. It's just there for you. The dog's like, ah, oh, here he goes. <laughs> and I worked on this tune, and I found it. It was a little Terrific. like kind of sprightly thing. Now I can't play it because I'm not an accomplished pianist but you hear it i'm a piano player so um so yeah i gotta figure it out but it's like you know i, I definitely don't throw things away mm-hmm. if there's a little song that didn't work maybe it's a bridge maybe i can carry it over maybe i can use the imagery somewhere else or, yeah. i'm completely with you on that never throw anything away mm. but i all it's funny you brought up like a christmas song that wasn't quite there because i've had one since my kids were little and it's and it's like, I hear it, like, uh, in my head, like, Evan Dando is singing it. <laughs> kind of low. <laughs> like, not pushing the range at all. And there's just something about, like, the verses that are just, you know. And over the years, my attitude toward Christmas as a concept has changed. <laughs> right. Right. And I'm like, I don't even want to finish this thing. Like, I'm not going to buy into this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. The goofy line is very... Easy to cross too, mm-hmm. but anyway, I do I do so enjoy writing. Batches of time to write really excite me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't need to go anywhere. I just need some time to let it kind of come along. But I don't force it. Like if I let's say if I had nothing to do today and I sat down, it was ten a.m. and I started and I just was like, not going. Where? Where's my writing session? Let's, yeah, let's move on. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't, I don't force things. But when it's going, you could, like, throw down the template for a couple songs just right there, you know? I think that's my MO of late, too. Like, you know, we've both gone through periods of our musical lives when 
and they're just so prolific, you know. And now, I might only write like three songs a year. <laughs> right. Well, you, you know, you've got a lot of irons in the fire. But yeah. yeah, but even so, even before before I started writing the book, I had what is my most recent full-length record, which came out in like 2016, I want to say. And even that record was kind of like a, uh, well, this is all the songs I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of a thing. Other songs, yeah. Um, and one of them was a remake of, uh, of another song. Um, but since that point, you know, I mean, I've had periods of, you know, little flourishes, but like nowhere near, you know, 97 to like 2012, sure. <laughs> you know. I'm thinking about this. Um, yes, there was a drive to get the new material out mm-hmm. because that meant that you had a reason to go back to the places that you knew you had an audience. So it was always about yeah. the touring, the, the touring cycle. Yeah. And the CDs was kind of a gift that way because that also was kind of it wasn't new, but it was like people were buying it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there definitely was that drive, and I was right there with you, like kind of. And when I when I kind of uh, when I fell down, is the way that I usually say. <laughs> when, when life kind of um, life grabbed you by the heels. I, I, I had gotten a full time job, mm-hmm. so I had been teaching part time at Community College Philadelphia and Drexel and all over the place. And I finally got a job at CCP, and that changed my relationship to the city so much. It gave me like a I don't know. It was like a key to the city, you know, because everybody has a kid or a brother or a cousin who goes there, or teaches mm-hmm. there, or whatever. Patty Griffin's sister teaches there. They used to go. So it's like it changed my perspective on things, and I got tired, you know. I, and I think what I'm kind of building towards is that I think you have an ability to kind of see the road ahead, and that maybe when you're gathering these other songs. You're starting to see that there isn't the need to kind of release music. So we moved into this like kind of singles thing with streaming. Where's all that going? Yeah. I mean, I am so proud of the record that I just released, American Courage, and I had a release event up in the um, in Asbury Park, hmm. and I saw some people I hadn't seen in years, and old fans who used to be on my New York mailing list who had moved down to Jersey, whatever. And they're buying T-shirts, and I'm like, why is nobody buying CDs? And like, nobody has a CD. Nobody can play them. <laughs> no, I like. I've had to say so many times in the past, like, five, six years, I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't, I have no way to play this. Thank you for, you know. And that's the weird thing. It's like, if you can't sell somebody a physical thing, what do you do? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you promise that you'll go listen to it for free later? (laughs) And at least listen to half the song? (laughs) That's the funny thing, it's like... You're consoling somebody by saying, well, I'll listen to it for free. <laughs> yeah. I'll listen to it on this thing that's not going to pay you. Well, yeah. and I think being a certain age gives us the experience yes, to do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always trying new things. You know, I did that songwriter circle at 118 North, which was me after my son, you know, was old enough. Mm-hmm. I could start to get out and play again. Yeah. Which right. was a very nice event. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure for you, it gave you a chance to like connect with a few different people every time you did it. And it was cool. I really enjoyed it. 
and you get to listen to other people and collaborate on the fly. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, COVID kind of shut that down. Maybe we should think about starting that up again. I'm actually part of a couple of songwriter nights later this year, and I'm really excited about. I haven't really done that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, in a while. But I think that's why I started doing the Fergie's um, Tom Waits night too, is because in the dark times, when I fell down, um, I wasn't ready. Yeah. And um, I decided to use kind of Tom Waits just by accident. Started using Tom Waits songs as a vehicle to kind of do something at the time to teach myself piano because um, I wasn't really playing piano. And uh, so all these years later, you know, Fergie used to be at those nights when I used to play at Time Bar when it. Mm-hmm. It was Ludwig's, and it became Time Bar. That became a neighborhood. Um, I used to live in that neighborhood for a little while, and so yeah, Fergie was like, "You should come and play for me." So I said, "Sure, let's do it." So I made him buy a new piano because the old <laughs> I'll play. The old piano was just like you're gonna have to buy it a piano. Mostly wax. <laughs> like it was just mm. it was a mess. So it was like the '68 key special. Um, <laughs> and so we did. We found a free piano. We moved the piano up there, and uh, it's been so much fun. You know, to have one night a month where I can forget about what I'm doing and just go and perform. I have a lot of fun with the crowd. Um, Everybody knows tip jar on the left, drinks on the right, Mm -hmm. and when they mess it up, it becomes a big thing and everybody laughs. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the septuagenarians come out. It's a a blast. It's real fun. But performing again. So so all the while that I'm writing for this record, I'm not thinking like the old days, I'm going to get out on tour, I'm going to sell product and what. No, it's it's I'm gonna I'm gonna do stuff. Isn't it liberating to and I don't know I mean you might have like a like a definitive like time in your mind when you were like, I don't do this for that reason anymore. I do this for actually a much closer reason to why you started. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm in that place now. Yeah. You know. And it's it's been really nice because, you know, especially since coming back after the pandemic, you know, I've been connecting with, like, a lot of younger musicians who are kind of, like, in the position that we were in, like, maybe in, like, the 2005 mm-hmm. realm. And I get a lot out of being around that energy you know, and it's very, like, motivating and inspiring for me to just do stuff. And that's really nice, you know. Like, unfortunately, a lot of our friends are not really out and about sure. yeah. these days. And, um, you know, so... I think that kind of refers back to kind of what we were saying before, you know, about how people do it. You know, like, there's a lot of great menus in Philadelphia. But there's a lot of great venues for Kurt Vile. <laughs> you know, like people who can bring three to 7,000 people. Yeah. And it's a lot harder to find a venue that's a three, 500 people venue. Yeah. And, you know, booking people like Jesse will tell you, like, you know, it was a problem before COVID. And now since COVID, people are just not coming back. So I think people our age or people in our generation are, are just not finding that that lane so yeah. that's again back to the whole mm-hmm. idea of like doing something else you know right like to quote the uh to, to quote the mom boss in um 
what the hell was that movie? It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll just do some fucking thing. You know, like, that was like his big advice, you know, <laughs> just do something, you know. And it, I don't know, I, I found it really rewarding over the last decade to just dabble in different projects. And mm-hmm. Some stuff takes and some stuff doesn't. But the end goal is not, here's how I'm going to make my money. Right. And that, you know, yeah. obviously used to be the goal of being self-sustaining <laughs> and kind of... And at some point, I guess, with experience, you realize everybody goes to heaven their own way. Like, you never know how it's going to happen. Right. You could follow somebody's template to the T, but that's not your story. Mm-hmm. You know? You just got to yeah. keep, keep doing stuff. I feel really lucky that I decided to write my book when I did because I think that I mean the thought crossed my mind at a certain point I'm like you know I could just go on making like independent records at nauseam and just be in this sort of like feedback loop my whole life and it was definitely time to try something different and so the only thing I could think of was to completely like <laughs> remove myself from from playing um, for a while and then now luckily I feel like I have a whole new crop of opportunities to express myself with music but in a completely new way yeah which is pretty exciting I can't remember Let's not talk about dates. Let's not be crass, John. Let's talk about dates. But there was a time when you reappeared on the stage at the open mic at the Grape Street Pub, and you had such an energy about you. And it was like then suddenly you were just there. And I remember, you know, I remember being excited to be a part of that. Hmm. And I don't, you know, obviously it's not going to make an impact on you because you were probably thinking, oh, no, you know, just De Rigueur and stuff that you do. But to me, it was special. And I think we need to remember that, that every time we step on stage, even if it's just at an open mic night, that there are people listening and that, you know, the, the way your performance, the way your presence impacts other people um, can make a big difference. Well, I've also determined that it makes a big difference for me. I still go out and do them. You do? Yeah. Yeah. My friend, I admire uh, that about you. My friend Katie Feeney runs the one on uh, Milk Boy on South Street. And I haven't been in about a couple of months, but um, uh, anytime I have like a new song or something where I'm like, this is not going to be any good until I screw it up in front of people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So I have to go do it there. Um, it's always like you have people sitting as close to you as you and I are right now, like watching you play. And that is something that I think that I need because I think that sometimes after you have like a certain experience level it's very easy for us to get into the mindset of like well we're kind of beyond that we don't have to do that and you don't have to but I think that it it helps you to it keeps you in a certain mindset that I find is important for me to have I mean these stories always revolve around experiences with people 
you know, I mean, it, it sounds kind of trite to say it, but it's like you you, you got to kind of be out there and you got yeah. to be in it. Everything good that's happened to me in music is a result of a performance that I've done. And not to say like, oh, I'm such a compelling performer, it makes people bow down, but it always starts with, we did a show. Somebody saw it, and then mm-hmm. we had this engagement. This something happened. It's how you connect. With it doesn't. People. It doesn't ever happen. Like I made a phone call. You know. Right. It's like yeah, that's all part of the game. And now with email and text and all that. <laughs> Funny story. When I was getting ready to release American Courage, I realized that I had to do some shows. You know? <laughs> I should play. So I, called, I should support. So I called Jesse. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I do this? Do, do I Snapchat people? Right. Like, you're, like, you're like. <laughs> There's so many things that I had to relearn how to do. And it's almost, it's like, sometimes I'll call my, like, 30-year-old musician friends and be like, I know this sounds ridiculous, but, like, what do I do? I was always so spoiled, you know, like, I had great relationships and people took care of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I Were you self-managed or did you have a manager? I, I worked with Terry Tompkins. Oh, okay. Back Sorry. in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when, we have to talk about California because I want to hear about your California experience. Um... But in the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. yeah, I was courted by a guy named Justin Goldberg, who was in L.A., mm-hmm. and he was originally a New Yorker, and um, I worked with Justin for a couple of years, and Justin's claim to fame, other than just being one of the sweetest men in the history of the planet, is that he found Grace Potter and got her signed to Hollywood Records oh, right. her career. Yeah. Wow. I remember sitting in a diner just like this with Grace and her band oh. in L.A. right before uh, stuff started happening for them. He's great. Yeah. But, so, I was just always so spoiled because it was, you know, the Tin Angel was always there for me. And, yeah. You know, places that I could go back to and I could deliver for them. Mm-hmm. So then coming back out and being like, well, how do I do this? And it's not as, you know, it's not, not as hard once you get the ball rolling, but you do have to get back into certain circles. Just you know? kind of become my uh, guru slash therapist <laughs> at this point in life. That's a 50-minute hour, John. I always I always text him first. I was like, can I call you about something? And he knows what he's getting into. Oh, that's, so <laughs> that's classic. He's like, do it now before everybody else starts calling. <laughs> but he's been so helpful to me. He's one of the first people I let read the book before it was even like fully edited and like his encouragement at that point was like really important because at a certain it still takes like so much like after you think you've finished something to fully believe that it's a thing mm-hmm. like I was like I don't know if this is yep is this any good is this does this even qualify as a book so he was extremely helpful. Yeah, books are never done. You just got to hand them in. You got to let them go, you know? Oh. It's like with a that's, song. That's what I, <laughs> I, mean, I found out. You finish the song, you know, you play it live. Like you said, I'm the same as you. If I kind of mess it up live and feel like what sticks around works. But mm-hmm. something that I've started to do is to revisit some of my older material. Mm. Um, I'm fine about rewriting, you know, maybe the, the hundred people who know the song, you know, from... 1998. Oh, so you've actually changed songs. Without changing the copyright or anything, just be like, you know. So there's a song on the current record called uh, Everyday Girl, Mm -hmm. which I wrote for a couple who had gotten married in Seattle years and years ago. And it was a 
bit jejun, and uh, <laughs> the chorus is great though, and I didn't want to throw it away. Ooh. And I like the chord structure. So I translated it to piano, and for some reason I wound up in D flat. I'm like, oh my God, why? <laughs> Just creating trouble for yourself, Brian. <laughs> and uh, I rewrote the verses with, you know, kind of the experience that I have now, and I wound up being... Was know, it a released song? Um, you know, that one wasn't, mm. but I have I have reworked stuff that was released. That's great. Yeah. I love that. From from that whole idea of writing is rewriting and thinking, well, you know, I, I can benefit now and I right. get a chance to kind of go back and mm -hmm. take another just update another it. shot mm -hmm. at it. Yeah, I love that. And I just released a video for that. Um, I had this elaborate idea in my head that I was going to have an animated video and I engaged somebody uh, on Fiverr and it just blew up. Like, it just didn't ever happen. It just kind of fizzled out. I'm like, you know what? God damn it, I'm going to do it. So, you know, I'm an, I'm an art historian, so I was like, I have all these paintings in my head of the world's oldest pastime, kissing. So mm -hmm. like, just kisses everywhere. So I, I got like 150 or something, like images of people kissing. Right. And I put them all together. And the first person who saw it was like, aren't you going to have copywriting? She was like, what is wrong with you? Like, this is 2023. Nobody cares yeah, if you I'm think using that Chardin's, you know, <laughs> boy-blowing The, the estate like, of Chardin cares. is going to come after you, Ryan. Uh, so anyway. Um, That's great. So I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. But I don't necessarily want to spend my time doing all that but I but I did enjoy and the ramp to releasing the record and making a video for mm -hmm. each song yeah that's great found a videographer I like um, I realized it was a lot cheaper if he just gave me all the footage and I had and to, you like, had to learn mm -hmm. how to do that and my friends are like oh use Adobe Premiere but to me it was like sitting in a cockpit and like being like okay fly this plane I was like what is this not so I went back to iMovie and just used that oh okay so I've done all my videos on that, but um, that's great. Yeah, it's a creative part of me that I've really enjoyed, but it is it is time on task. Mm -hmm. So you know, my wife will be like, uh, "You really have to be doing this." It's like, well, yeah, yeah, I got a deadline. To your point, and I spent most of yesterday creating five social media reels for a single that I have coming out, and um, I actually, you know, I mean, way, way, way back when I was super young, I had aspirations to be in like the film industry mm -hmm. before music mm -hmm. took hold. So this, in, in some ways, it's sort of really satisfying to be able to be like, oh, that edit was so good, John. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed that. <laughs> it was right on the beat. Yeah. You know? So I actually, you know, a, a lot of musicians, especially ones that are like actively, you, you know, trying to make it, who have to be everything and do everything for themselves, you know, they sometimes bemoan the amount of hats they have to wear, but I'm actually enjoying it. Like, I like, and I think part of it is because it's, okay, I'm definitely only going to have one single out this year, so I'd be more than happy to, like, do all the stuff that you want to have to promote it and it's kind of like part of the whole just another way to be creative with it mm -hmm. and it's fun so I actually em embrace that part of it but I can definitely see how you know married with a family and yeah. you're like you've been editing for like <laughs> yeah and these are great years for, for my son is 11 so it's like mm -hmm. it's really 
you know, imaginative time, and you know, he's old enough to kind of do stuff. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he's old enough to ride roller coasters. Seven roller coasters at Hershey. Oh my God! There's no romance in roller coasters anymore. They just go up, and then they go down, and they're fast, and they're frightening. They stir, and, stir your innards. So, so it's that kind of thing where mm-hmm. it's like I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm away. So I love the work, but it's time on task. Yeah. There's only so many hours that I can not sleep. You know. Um, <laughs> I only have so many hours to dedicate to not sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, because I would I would try to get up early and kind of get it done before mm-hmm. he was up and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, um, that's, that's. But there are so many things that I would I would jettison. Like I'm terrible at booking at PR, like all that stuff. And you know I have to kind of take a little bit of exception of what you just said about the uh, doing the video for the promotions because that's also creative work. So it's like yeah, I'll create work. I'll do creative work. Any time of the day. Sure. Yeah. But when I've got to do business stuff or uh, mm-hmm. what it was, um, uh, Regina Spector has this wonderful song with a pairing of things. One of them is business and sadness go together. <laughs> <laughs> business and sadness. That's funny. Go together. Mm-hmm. I just caught her at the, uh, what's that really old place up in the, up by uh, Arcadia University? You know right there? Oh, the Keswick? Keswick, wow. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she was great. She just played solo. She was on for 90 minutes wow. with her right. big old piano. And, yeah. I actually walk by the Keswick on my walk. I do like a 10,000 step walk yeah. from Jenkintown to Glenside. Oh, so I do know where. Okay. I yes. do know where Jenkintown. Yeah. It's not far. It's not far. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I love that place. The um, I saw Sparks there a couple months ago. I was blown away. Really? Are you a fan? Mm-hmm. So, when I, my first exposure to them was like as a teenager, and it was during their sort of like the, the 80s, which was a much more synthesizer. Videos, and yeah. <clears throat> they had a collaboration with Jane Wheatman from the Go-Go's. That was my entrance, my entry point. Yeah. And um, you have no idea listening to those records, like what... Cool places. Yes. Sorry, I'm just working no, no, through yeah. my mm-hmm. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, you have no idea, like, what kind of, like, level of vocalist this guy is. Mm. And he gave this, and I, I was observing in the audience, I'm like, this is kind of like a pretty young, skewing, you know, it seems like there's like a lot of hipsters here, you know, like, I think that documentary that they that they had out last year or the year before like really went a long way toward sort of like placing them in the history of music in a way that was really beneficial to them and um, he gave like a vocal performance that just like floored me and he's 74 and Ron is almost 80 (laughs) I was just floored like, like, there were moments when it almost felt like I was at, like, a Panic at the Disco show or something. I mean, some of their songs from the 70s are, like, so ahead of their time. And why would they stop? I mean, this is the weird thing about the popular phenomena. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was just listening to that um, Rich Kaufman and encouraged me to listen to the 500 songs, the history of rock and roll and oh, 500 yeah. songs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says at the beginning, you know, it's a, we're kind of in a post-rock era. You know, the rock and roll as oh, a yeah. viable force is not still a Rolling Stone and, yeah. but to think of like well Stones are a good example why would they stop you know like a very Stone audience um, part of what I like to write about in 
my academic life is the idea of the public. And this fascinates me to think that you could go to nowhere, nowhere suburb outside of Philadelphia mm -hmm. and assemble thousands of people to see sparks. What night of the week was it? It was a weeknight. Yeah. So on a weeknight, you've got thousands of people like, who is this public? Yeah. So it's not as easy as I've got to hit someone on the radio, I'm the war on drugs, and there's a volition that will fill a stadium. You know, that's, right. that's different. Mm -hmm. This is like, there's a little public that forms around this, and you're not text buddies. You don't know each other. Yep. You, you know, it's very different, all kinds of different <coughs> demographics. Mm -hmm. um, I'm fascinated by that, about how, too. how kind of popular culture works that way. Mm -hmm. That these little kind of publics form, like who will show up? I, you know, they'll they'll show up. You know? Another kind of interesting thing on that too. I have a friend um, <clears throat> who's played in some of my bands over the years. Um, who plays with this guy Pat Finnerty, who you probably know because he's always at Fergie's. Yeah. Um. So I went and saw Pat Finnerty at. Johnny Brenda's, and, it, and he had not really done a Philly show, apparently, because I'd never seen him play live, but I knew who he was. Um, he hadn't played in a long time since. Are you aware that he's a YouTube phenomenon? I did not know that. Okay, so yeah. he has. <clears throat> ever seen um, the, uh, the Rick Beato, What Makes This Song Great yes. videos? So this guy, Pat Trinity, very funny guy. Um, he started doing a YouTube series called What Makes This Song Stay. And went into as much musical detail as Rick Beato would in the other direction, letting yeah. us know like right. why it's so bad. And it's hilarious. And he's got, I, I don't know, he's in the, like, the 100,000 right. YouTube subscriber realm. And so the reason I bring it up is like, it's the first show I've ever been to where the artist's audience was clearly not generated by, you know, the things that we would consider, like, how you get a following. Like, these were all people. There's no one from YouTube. And I was blown away by it because it was mobbed. Yep. And it's like, who are these people mm -hmm. that would never go to Johnny Brenda's on any other, yeah. for any other reasons? Yeah, that's yeah, another reason why. It's so interesting. These publics are so different. Like this, I guess a big phenomenon now is kind of like that is podcasts, right? So I have a live staging of the podcast, and it's remarkable the people who know about this stuff. Uh -huh. You know, like it'll be like a Saturday night at the World Cafe Live, and it'll be like featuring the so and so podcast. You'd be like, I've never heard of this thing. Yeah. Well, and it's another reason why I think you need to kind of stop battling with the idea of the audience in your past and in your mm -hmm. and the frameworks that you kind of came up with, you know? yeah and that's why you said taking energy from young people is listen I mean see what people are doing and what they're open to and just do it because it's worthwhile because right. you know it, for all the people dreaming about being an influencer or being like the next big thing it's like it's like thinking you're going to day trade it's like you just you can't, yeah. you can't do that you know and it has to happen um so yeah, I think with the music business, we're let's let's congratulate ourselves. We're perfectly where we need to be. <laughs> I feel good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. It's sort of interesting to uh, 
you know, I feel like I'm semi in touch with that world and how it works without like being like fully committed to trying to like, you know, <clears throat> with the knowledge that is very unlikely that a 56 year old man is going to make inroads <laughs> in that way. But by the same token, never saying never, because you see there are examples of, you know, oh, there's a 30 year old song that just so happened to just for whatever random reason, yeah. you know, just <clears throat> becomes a thing. And so I think just the whole mantra of just, just be around, just be there to receive something yeah. and do, do your work, like keep working. As long as it still brings you joy. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Because I think we both know without naming names, our share of people who we've you know, open for and then on, you know, tour, we're just so jaded and angry about, again, the expectations. They lost they the joy because, yes, yeah. because they, right, because it was not lining up with what they thought it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you because in my own path of like coming to that acceptance, it's like, this is all just an experience. I almost like, I'm in a mental place where, like, if a gig doesn't go well, I'm okay with it because then it's a story. <laughs> like, it's like everything is now. I mean, that. Maybe, maybe in the way that we handled this diner situation. Right. <laughs> you thought you were going to Little Pete's, and here you are at the Blue Jay. Life is like that sometimes, you know. You think you're going to Little Pete's and you end up having a blast at the Blue Jay. In spite of, or perhaps because of, the owners having to spend at least five full minutes trying to wake up and eject a guy who just flat out fell asleep on the counter. Never a dull moment. And not a single dull moment on American Courage, by the way. So check out the latest Brian Seymour album. It's on all streaming services and... If you have one of those ancient gadgets known as a CD player, you can actually purchase a hard copy at brianseymour.com. I want to thank Brian for a great get-together, and thank you for listening. I'm John Kim Fay, and I'll catch you next time on Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner.